Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Online, thanks for tuning in with us this morning. We're glad that you have um, checked in, and we're continuing in a series about the presence of God and going through some stories in the Old Testament. I'm going to start by asking you to think about when you felt God's presence, when you had the, the greatest sense of God's presence um, in your life, like when you were convinced God was there and in the room and what that time was. Because um, I think for most of us, that time is, it can be in a room like this, it can definitely be in times of worship, and, and some times of worship, it just seems like you have a greater sense of God's presence than and God is present all the time, but like sometimes you feel that more. Um, sometimes in nature, uh, it can happen. I drove up to Virginia yesterday to, to um, watch our oldest son play soccer, and the leaves were changing, and that part of Virginia is beautiful, and um, that stuff, you know, can be stunning. A lot of people say that when they feel God when uh, they, they're in nature. If you have children, it can be when a child is born that you just sense something about God's presence. It could be a time when um, there's been a handful of times in my life I've never, some people at, at church over the years, like some people have visions, you know, and I, I believe in those things. And, and some people say they've heard God audibly. For me, it's just like, sometimes I feel like he impresses things on me that are different than at other times. A couple years ago, um, I was in Nicaragua with Seneca. We were in an orphanage. It was our last day. I didn't really want to be there, to be honest, but I like rallied and like, we're here, so I'm going to be here. And the kids come out, and I felt like God said, you're supposed to adopt that little girl. And I've been to orphanages before, and I got lots of kids. Like, it just was not, did not think that was going to happen, and we pursued it. And, you know, it came up against roadblocks. But in that moment, I was like, holy, like it freaked me out. That's, I think, what most of us say about God's presence. It's probably not, again, if you have children, it's probably not about an hour ago when you were trying to get your kids ready to come to church and you were audibly yelling at them and internally yelling at your spouse about them. And that probably is not a time when you felt God's presence like close to you. It's probably something that when you're now trying to feel God's presence, you're repenting of the things that you did an hour ago so that you can be in God's presence. It's in the good times is when it's easier to feel God's presence. And in the hard times, when things are going badly, it's, it can be harder for us to sense God's presence. One person this week said, oh, I mean, I've, I feel like I felt God's presence the most when I was really in, the, in, in it. I was in some bad stuff, you know. But, he, but then he's like, but that was only in hindsight. In the moment, I didn't, I didn't feel that. Uh, how many of you have something going badly in your life right now? Liars. Like everybody's got hard, something hard right now, right? Um, we, we all always do. And it, it seems like in those areas, if God was with me, things should be going better. And I feel like that's the normal way for us to think. It's a biblically sanctioned way to think. A third of the Psalms lean into that way of thinking. Recently, um, I came across this Psalm, Psalm 13, Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy win Consider me. Look at me, God. Answer me. Uh, 
Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. How many of you have related to that psalm at some point in your life? Um, and so this is, this is complicated because I think most of the time in people's lives, some things are going well and some things are not going well. Uh, I don't know if you remember this game, the whack-a-mole game. And that's what life feels like a lot of times, where, like there's something going wrong and so you just pound that thing, you know, and you're like, yes, got it. And then another one, and you're like, dang it. And then another one, and then they're like that one again. And that's just what it feels like. And so is God with me in the things that are hard or in good, but not with me in the things that are difficult? And I think we know that that's probably not true. Sometimes we understand the distance that we feel from God because we know we created it. Um, either we walked away from God or we failed to trust him in an area of our lives and we sinned and we made a mess of things. Uh, and sometimes things just don't go our way because things aren't going to always go your way because we live in a fallen world and we're fallen sinful people and we experience that. Um, but a lot of times in ways where we wonder how and why God could have let that happen and how long he's going to let it go on. And the story we get to today leans into that dynamic um, and into this question. Why do our circumstances control our emotions more than the presence or absence of God controls our emotions? Because when we, when we feel God's presence in the good things, but we have a harder time feeling in the bad things, I think that's what we're saying actually happens. And so this is the story of Joseph. Now in this series, we've been talking about God's presence in our lives. Um, the first week was uh, about the Garden of Eden and how we're made for the perfect presence of God, and that it's the only place where we're going to be completely satisfied. The next two weeks were about how sin creates a distance between us and the Lord, and between us and, and each other and other people. It creates distance. Um, Dan talked about Abraham, and God promises that he's going to restore his perfect presence to us, but right now we live in a disruptive presence, and so Dan talked a lot about doubt um, last week. With the story of Abraham last week, uh, John talked about the story of Jacob and, and how we find our identity and other things and need to come back to a place where we find that in the Lord. And now we're at the story of Joseph. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, who John talked about last week, and Jacob ends up having 12 sons by four different women. And the second youngest of those sons is Joseph. He's got one younger brother, it's named Benjamin, that's going to come into this story. And so that's the story we're going to look into. And this is the first point I want to make, to, that your circumstances are a bad gauge of God's presence or absence. But a lot of times that's the gauge that we use. So the beginning of the story, um, Genesis chapter 37, it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, two of his father's four wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to, the fa to their father. So strike one against Joseph is that he's a tattletale. Um, John talked last week about um, acorns and how they, there's a hard shell and how when we're young we have... Uh, defense mechanisms or survival tactics or identities that we, we put on that can be a hard shell that had to be cracked later. And, and a lot of times for the youngest um, of a bunch of children, tattletale is one of the identities that they put on, you know, which isn't great, but that's what happens. And that's what Joseph does, and so he's telling his brothers. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Strike two against Joseph is that he's daddy's favorite. Now Jacob's got... 
some issues. We talked about that last week. One of his issues is that he has four wives, and he loved one wife, Rachel, more than the other wives. And then the last two kids, Joseph and Benjamin, are his kids by his wife, Rachel, and so he loved them more than his other kids. And that's not helpful when you have a lot of kids, or really any kids, like to love some of your kids more than other kids, and he's pretty bold about it. And so it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him, and they couldn't even speak peacefully to him, like they raged against him. How many of you have or had angry older brothers or sisters? Because girls are mean, right? Yeah, I mean, you you can be mean. How many of you were an angry older brother or sister? (laughs) That's great. I had one older sister. Um, She was angry a lot. She'll be here in a few weeks. She'll verify that uh, for me. But I I didn't have any older brothers, but I had a family two doors down, the Stemper brothers, which just sounds good, the Stemper brothers, you know? And um, it was a good Northern Catholic family, had seven kids, uh, three girls and four boys, and the two oldest girls I never saw because they were out of the house by the time David, and I was friends with David, who was the youngest brother. And then there was another sister, and the oldest brother was Jeff, who was a little bit too old to beat me up. Like, he was just kind of out of it. And then the, the brother right above David was Chris, and he acted tough, but he turned out to be a really nice guy. But then there was the middle brother, John. He was just mean. He was just a mean kid, you know? And the thing, I don't remember much about that whole, like, era But I'll never forget that John would get his dental work done without Novocaine. And his dad was a banker, and they belonged to the country club. Like, this was not a financial choice, right? He's like some type of masochist, I guess. And so every time I went over to the Stemper's house, I came home with a bloody nose or a fat lip uh, because I got beat up by David's older brothers. And it was probably a good thing for me. But you don't want to get on the bad side of older brothers, and somehow Joseph hasn't gotten this message. And so strike three for Joseph involves two dreams that he has. And in the first one, there's 11 sheaves of wheat, and they bow down to to his sheave of wheat, which is his 11 brothers bowing down to him. And in the second one, the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to Joseph, and it's his mother and father and 11 brothers bowing down to him. Now, you can't control what you dream, But you can control who you tell what you dream, and he has to be supremely clueless to have brothers that hated him and couldn't even speak peacefully to them and decide to tell them about this dream, and that sets him over the top. They're like, you've got to be kidding me. He even tells his father, Jacob, the dream, and Jacob's like, you should not not have said that out loud. (laughs) Like, Jacob is irritated by it. Um, He just didn't get it because it didn't mean that he deserved what came next. So his brothers are out in the field. His dad sends Joseph to check on him, which indicates that that Jacob's part of the problem, and he's sending Joseph out to spy on his brothers. And it says they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we'll see what becomes of his dreams. In that scene, two of his brothers, Reuben and Judah, separately plot to like spare his life so the other brothers don't actually kill him. What they end up doing is taking his, uh, they end up selling him to traders that are going down to, to Egypt. And they take his robe 
and they um, dip it in the blood of an animal, and they give the robe back to Jacob and say, um, he must have been killed. We found the robe. He must have been killed by an animal. And those 10 brothers, Benjamin isn't a part of that, those 10 brothers carry that secret around and hold it for about 20 years. And Joseph ends up uh, a slave in Egypt. Now, if you're in Joseph's shoes right now, like where are you with the Lord? Are you feeling the presence of the Lord in the midst of what you're experiencing? You know, your brothers who I don't think you realize hated you as much as they hated you, um, but you didn't think, whatever the case, that they would do this, sell you into slavery, have abandoned you. It's like Braveheart, you know? That guy gets sold into slavery and goes down to Egypt and becomes a gladiator, but Joseph ain't becoming a gladiator and coming back. Like, there's no coming back. Uh, He doesn't express that hope. He's done. He's not going back to his homeland. He's not seeing his brothers again. He's not seeing his mom or his dad again. Where is God in the midst of that? Are you feeling the presence of God in the midst of the tragedy? And honestly, like, I'm probably not. I'm in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Like, what are you doing? Have you forgotten about me? Are you just going to leave me here? Um. Here's what the scripture says, Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And it's not, the rest of the story is going to indicate this, it's not like God forgot about him. It's not like one day God's like, hey, whatever happened to that annoying Joseph kid? And some angels are like, oh man, we forgot to tell you this, but he's in Egypt. Egypt, we got to go get him. It's not that. He was with him the entire time. The Lord was with Joseph right in the midst of this tragedy. I don't know if that creates a conflict for you. It doesn't create one intellectually. I can get that. It creates one emotionally because... It's just hard. It's hard to to feel God with you in the midst of your circumstances. I was talking to um, Matt uh, Noble this week, and you're not going to want to miss next week because Matt and Ashley are going to tell their story in a Where is God When Life Happens week, and it's incredible. Um, But we were talking about how people tend to, like, believe these things and varying degrees, that I am loved by God, and God is in complete control of my circumstances. But they tend to believe one more than they believe the other, or have a deeper feel. We can believe them intellectually, but we feel one more than we feel the other. And like this story and this scene put these things uh, in tension or highlight the tension. Think about your worst circumstance right now, the thing in your life that you would change absolutely if you could. Do you feel like God's in control of that circumstance? Do you feel loved in the midst of that circumstance? This is one of those stories that is in the deep end of the pool. Now, the story takes another twist. Potiphar's wife develops a thing for Joseph. She pursues him sexually. He resists her and resists her and resists her. And then one day he ends up in the house alone with her, and he's fleeing her, and she pulls his robe off, and she accuses him 
of sexually assaulting her, and everybody believes her. Potiphar believes her. Even if he doesn't believe her, he says he believes her, because what's he going to do there? And Joseph, who did the right thing and resisted this woman, gets thrown into prison. He can't catch a break. Where is God now? Genesis 39, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison in the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. I think he's trying to make sure we understand exactly where Joseph is, right? Prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So the Lord was with Joseph again, and, and he like doubles down on that. He showed him steadfast love. That word is all over the Old Testament. It's kessed, and it's this, the, like the deepest form of God's love. One author said it's wrapping up in itself all of the positive attributes of God, his love, his covenant faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, and loyalty. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. Man, I think that's hard. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, hey, God, could you have showed your steadfast love to me by not letting me get thrown in prison in the first place? Uh, and again, we have psalms of lament that let us ask God that question. But this is how life goes, and we can't avoid the negative. One of the best sermons I ever heard about anything was a guy in Atlanta named Andy Stanley preaching on Joseph. He said, you know things are bad when the best thing you got going for you is that you're good friends with the warden. Like you're in a bad way when that's the case. Andy said, if God had been with me when I got taken into slavery and God had been with me when I got thrown into prison, I might ask God to go away. <laughs> I might just take my chances and see what happens. Uh, the way the story is written is fantastic. He's with him. He's with him the whole time. And Joseph rises to prominence again eventually. Um, two of Pharaoh's servants, the cupbearer and the baker, get thrown into prison with him, and they have dreams, and Joseph's a dream guy, so he interprets their dream, and the baker's dream, Joseph says, it means you're going to get executed, and the cupbearer, he says, your dream means you're going to get restored to Pharaoh's service, and, uh, but when you get restored, just don't forget about me, just don't forget about me in prison, and sure enough, he's restored to service, and sure enough, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. <laughs> and another two years in prison. And so two years later, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret, and, and Pharaoh is exercised about this, like this is critical, you need somebody. And in the dream, uh, seven fat cows walk out of the Nile River, which is kind of weird, and then they're followed by seven skinny cows, and then the seven skinny cows eat the fat cows, which I never really thought about that, but that's disgusting, you know? And then there's seven fat ears of corn, and seven skinny ears of corn consume the fat ears of corn, and no one knows what this dream means, and Pharaoh is ticked. And so the cupbearer is like, oh, right, there was that young Egyptian or Hebrew guy in prison, and so he tells Pharaoh that, and they call him into Pharaoh's court. So this is your chance if you're Joseph. Like, you interpret this dream, and I mean, this is your shot. Like, you're going to the majors, you know? And so it says, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he'd shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. This is your chance, you know, because you do dreams. And um, if I'm Joseph, I'm probably a little bit like, hey, God, can we not screw this chance up? But this guy has so much faith. Like, he's such an amazing character, 
in the Bible. And Joseph answered Pharaoh and says, I cannot do it. It is not in me. But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Keep in mind that Pharaoh thinks he's God. And everybody treats Pharaoh like, like he's God. And here comes Joseph out of prison saying, the, tr- the real God, not like you, but the real God will give you the answer uh, to your dream. His composure in that moment in front of the most powerful person in the world with this is your chance is phenomenal. Uh, just faith. And he tells him that Egypt is going to have seven years of bumper crops followed by seven years of famine. And so what he should do is store up a bunch of grain during those seven like, good years so that they can get through the seven years of famine and help out other lands get through the seven years of famine. And so he needs to find somebody that he can put in charge of that. And Pharaoh says, you got the job. And so just like that, it's rags to riches. He goes from being a prisoner to like the prime minister, just like that. So that first point, your circumstances are a bad gauge of God's presence or absence. He is with you. And this is, I don't say this lightly. He is with you in the worst of your circumstances. And um, some of you have been through some really bad circumstances. And some of you are in some really bad circumstances. And for myself, like knowing that intellectually from the Word of God, over and over and over again in the Word of God, that He's with you when you don't feel like it matters a whole lot to me. Uh, But this is my second point. Being convinced that God is with you will make things easier, but it will not make things easy. And let's be honest. We're not looking for easier, are we? We're looking for easy. (laughs) Uh, This will bring you comfort. Uh, It is comforting. And, And in the Psalms, you see that over and over again, the comfort that the Lord is with you. But that comfort includes a lot of questions. And so for Joseph, um, things, things turn for him, and he ends up in this fantastic position in Egypt. But things aren't okay. Like, he's buried the stuff with his brothers deep, but it's not done. And you can tell that even by what he names his kid. He has two kids, and one he names Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. It is less than convincing to me that he names his kid that and he's really actually forgotten it when he's got a little reminder about how he's forgotten it, like rolling around all the time. And the second one, Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Like he's still carrying all this stuff. And they go through those years of plenty and then the famine hits and it hits Israel as well as Egypt. And after two years, Joseph's brothers uh, come down to Egypt because they hear that there's grain there, and they go to Joseph to get it. So Genesis chapter 42. Now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. What a moment. And Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And he's 20 years older. He's like full-on living like an Egyptian, you know? He's dressed like that. He's of this prominence. He's probably got super fancy clothes. It says he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize him. And he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. 
which kind of implies he'd forgot. And if I were Joseph, I would have wanted to forget about that dream. Like in hindsight, I would have thought, man, if I'd never had that dream, those dreams are the thing, that, the straw that broke the camel, they're the thing that created this problem. I would have shoved those dreams away. And here he remembers the dreams that he dreamed of them. And then he seems to freak out a little bit over the next few scenes. And it starts with your spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And so this guy, who's so composed in front of the most powerful person in the world when it comes to his brothers, seems to lose it and freak out. And what part of this isn't a point, but it is a point. This was true last week with Jacob when he comes back to Esau and it all gets dug back up for him. It's going to be true. I mean, next week, the story that you're going to listen to with the nobles is long. Like, God, it's over a long period of time. The week after that with Moses, God plays a long game. There are things in our lives that we just want to forget about. And God has let them lay dormant, but he's still going to bring those things up. He still wants to bring healing into those areas of life because part of that healing is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And part of that healing is for the people involved in those situations that we want to forget about, for them to be um, conformed to the image of Christ. And so that stuff in our past is not off limits for God. And it seems that he uses it over and over again. And so his activity over the next few chapters seems frenetic. At first, he accuses them of being spies. Then he says, "Uh, I'm going to keep you all here. And then he says, no, I'm going to keep one of you here, and the others of you go back, and you need to get the youngest brother. And then when you bring the youngest brother, then I'll give you Simeon. He's the one that has to stay back. And then he sends them off. But before he sends them off, his servants take the money that they had paid for the grain and puts it back in their bags without them knowing. So they get like halfway back to Israel and realize the money's still in their bags, which doesn't seem like a good thing to them. Like that's going to tick Joseph off. And then they get down there and tell their dad Jacob that they can't get Simeon unless they bring back Benjamin. And Jacob says, you ain't touching Benjamin. So tough luck, Simeon. Uh, But that's his favorite now, Benjamin, because Joseph is gone and because Jacob has issues. And two years later, they run out of food again. He's like, okay, you guys got to go back to Egypt. And Judah says, hey, I can't go back to Egypt without Benjamin. This guy made that clear. And I promise you, Dad, I will not let anything happen to Benjamin. And this is such a scene because Judah's working through the guilt of having let this happen to Joseph. But Jacob doesn't know that because he thinks Joseph got killed by an animal. And like, what a messed up family. And eventually, Jacob relents because it's the only option. And so they come back up with Benjamin and they meet with Joseph again. And he lets them all go back with their grain. But this time, Joseph puts his chalice, which is a big deal, into, has his servants put his chalice in Benjamin's bag, and they start off back to Israel, and his servants catch up with him and say, somebody stole Joseph's chalice, and whoever it is, they're in big trouble. And then they recover it in Benjamin's bag, and the brothers are like, we're just, this is not good at all. (laughs) Like the thing we said can't happen has happened. And so this, they all go back to Egypt, and this scene happens between Judah, this is Judah and Joseph. So Judah says, for your servant, who's Judah, became a pledge of safety for the boy who is Benjamin to my father who is Jacob, right? Your servant Judah became a pledge of safety for Benjamin to my father Jacob, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant Judah remain instead of Benjamin as a servant to Joseph and let Benjamin go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. 
The gospel is woven all through this story. It is over and over again the righteous suffering on behalf of the unrighteous. And so Joseph is a picture of Jesus in this story. He is the righteous one. He didn't deserve all the things that happened to him, but we're going to see this in just a second. Like that stuff happened so that he could save the lives of the unrighteous who are his brother. And that's what Christ has done for us. The righteous one has given his life for us, the unrighteous, so we could be spared the consequences of our action. But here Judah is putting himself in the same place. Um, Benjamin is presented as the guilty one, but Judah knows that he's really the guilty one. And he says, take me instead of Benjamin and let Benjamin go. And this is what seems to break Joseph. In one of just the greatest scenes in the Bible, the way this thing is built up over chapter after chapter after chapter of the story, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians, he's losing it. And the house of Pharaoh heard it. This guy that is the prime minister of Egypt that has steered them through this crisis is losing it in front of these, you know, Hebrew folks that came just looking for some grain. And he said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And in one of the most anticlimactic, but I think a little bit funny verses in the Bible, it says, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. <laughs> I just think that's, I just like, I don't know Hebrew. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, they're Hebrew experts that do this, so I don't want to, like, throw them under the bus. I just think, I would like to be in the meeting where that's how they translate it. He's terrified. They're terrified. Like, he's going to, he's surely going to kill us now. Uh, here's the third point. God has a very good reason for being with you in your bad circumstance. And um, let, me, let me go back two points that, that um, how you feel isn't, isn't a good gauge for the presence or absence of God, and God's always with you. The caveat, there are some caveats to that. One of them is like King Saul, the Lord departed from King Saul. So there are biblical caveats to that. When I come to this point, I almost put God might have a very good reason for being with you in your bad circumstances because this is easier to say to a group of people than it is to say to one person who's going through something extremely hard. Um, because it made me think through some folks that I've sat down with going through some unbearable situations where I... Well, in any of them, like, I can only say that God's with you in that circumstance because I believe that's what Scripture teaches. But it's hard to get my, the words out of my mouth for some of the things that people have experienced. But it's what Scripture tells us. Um, God doesn't spare us. He spares us, ultimately, the consequences of our sin and promises us eternal life with him. But in this life, he doesn't spare us all those consequences. And so we experience him. And Joseph says to his brothers, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God 
sent me before you for a reason, to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now God has given Joseph a couple years since the brothers first showed up to work all this out. Like they show up and then he talks with them, they go back and then they come back and it's like God's given him some time to realize that all he went through was part of a plan that there's no possible way he could have seen in the middle of it. But by the grace of God, he can see it now. God used Joseph to save the family from a famine. And maybe more than that. I read something this week that kind of blew me away about the, the seemingly frenetic actions of Joseph towards his brothers when they show back up. And it was a a rabbi, actually, that said in, in Jewish thinking, I would say this is true in Christian thinking too, there's three stages of repentance. There's confession. You've got to own up to what you've done. And then you've got to commit not to do that thing again. And you know you've repented when you have the chance to do the thing again and you don't do it. That's how you know you've repented. And so I won't go back through all these verses, but when they show up the first time and he accuses them of being spies, and then he's going to hold all of them, and then he's going to hold Simeon, and they have to go back and get Benjamin, they're like, man, this is a lot. And one of them says, hey, we deserve everything we're getting right now because of what we did 20 years ago to our brother Joseph. And you see a depth of confession, like they get it and they're owning it. And they're together collectively saying, yeah, we deserve this because of what we did to our brother Joseph. And then they go back um, to their father Jacob, and then they have to go back and bring Benjamin, and Judah commits, I won't do it again. And his dad doesn't even know what he's committing to because he doesn't know he did it the first time, but Judah is saying, I will not sell out my younger brother the way that I did with Joseph. I won't do that to Benjamin, so he's committing not to do it. And when Joseph puts the chalice in Benjamin's bag, and so Benjamin's the guilty one, and all they have to do is say, yeah, that Benjamin, and let him go, and they can go back to Israel. Like, all they have to do is what they did before. They have a chance to do it again. And Judah offers his life up instead of Benjamin's. Is like the third stage of repentance. So more than just what he's done for the family and more than just what he's done in Joseph, he's led the brothers through these stages of repentance. There's a quote from a pastor named John Piper who said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Uh, but he's always doing a million things in our lives. God is with you in, in, in the good and the bad things that you're going through. Whatever the whack-a-mole is that you can't get to stay down, God is right there with you. And we can't, we can't escape like the you know, we escape the consequences ultimately because of what Christ has done for us, but we don't escape them in the midst of, what we're, we don't always escape them right in the midst of at ours or the people around us. He doesn't put us in a bubble that protects us from that, but he promises to be with us in the midst of it. And we have a God that not just promises to be with us, but a God who has gone through the suffering so that we know he relates to what we're going through. And that should make life easier, but not easy. 
We should not expect easy, uh, but we should expect comfort and learn how to find comfort in the midst of that. But it won't answer all your questions. In fact, it will draw you closer to him in the midst of it and create a need to pray more in the midst of it on a, on a day-by-day or moment-by-moment basis and actually, in a way, put us back in the garden where we look at situations and we don't know whether they're good or evil or we don't know what the good or evil is in them, but we know that God is with us. And that's where Adam and Eve were when they were in the perfect presence of God. And it helps, helps hold the tension of God loves me. He'll never love me any more or any less than he loves me right in this moment. And God is in complete control of what's going on. Um, and I'm going to finish with this, and we'll lead into communion, and the band can come back up here. But a verse from Acts that leans into the same dynamic. Um, and this is Peter um, giving his sermon at Pentecost. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. The disciples have been told to wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down on them, and they draw a crowd because they're speaking in foreign languages that they have no reason um, to know. And as Peter starts preaching this sermon, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, he's in Jerusalem, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, in Jerusalem, as you yourselves know, you've all seen it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was in complete control. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men who thought they were getting away with one, were doing exactly what God had a definite plan for and knew was going to happen. We're trying to understand an infinite God with two and a half pounds of gray matter, right? We're not going to understand that completely. Uh, But we can find comfort in it. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We're going to take communion in a minute, and um, if you have, have accepted who Christ is and what he's done for you, that he was the divine son of God, that he lived a perfect life, he died on our behalf and rose from the dead, um, this is what he tells us to do to remember him, that it is his body that's been broken for us and his blood that's been shed for us because we are so quick to forget emotionally, not intellectually, the goodness of the gospel and the Lord to us. And so I invite you to do that. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a second and close your eyes. And just going through this, I find this story incredible and deep, and I love it, and I love preaching it. I find it so hard. And I know there's some of you that are either here or you're tuned in and you find this so hard. And um, if you have questions about it, I'd love to talk to you. I'm not going to pretend that I have answers. Um, But I'd love to talk about this passage or other passages in Scripture that lean into this truth. And my prayer is that even if God won't relieve you of those circumstances in this moment, that you would find comfort by his presence in this moment. And that he has shown himself 
time after time after time to be good. And right at the center of the story is his suffering on our behalf. Our high priest who has suffered. So he relates to all the suffering that we go through. That he is with you in the midst of whatever it is you're going through. Father, thank you for the story, for the depth of it, uh, for your scripture, for how I could read this a hundred times and feel like I've gotten a fraction of it, Lord. I pray that you would impress that into our hearts, God, and the reality that you are with us, God, and the comfort of your presence in the midst of what we're going through. I love you and pray this in Jesus' name.